Welcome back to the 28th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including one, talking about how the Fed has changed the stock markets forever, another one looking at the future of cryptos and Kathy Wood's opinions on what the Fed is doing right and wrong, and our last story touches on affordable housing developments and whether they actually raise the value of the houses around them. You may find uh, that article interesting, offers some different opinions that I didn't see coming. Uh, And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. Has the Fed and the U.S. government become too involved with the markets? Over the past 20 years, we have seen the Fed, the Treasury, the central bank become ever more involved in Wall Street, from big company bailouts to quantitative easy measures. And is it, is it too much? Or is it vital to the health of our economy? And of course, you know, some of you may not be economists. Some of you may not be completely up to date on what's happening in the markets. You may be a casual observer. But if you have an opinion, put it down in the comments. I'd love to hear what you have to say. All right. Now that we got that out of the way, let's jump into our first article from CNN Business. The Fed may have changed markets forever. So the first thing the article likes to highlight, and you've probably seen it all around the news, is most economists say that we are on the brink of recession. And a smaller amount of those have been signaling that we're already in a recession. I mean, by the old definition of recession, or I take that back, the common definition, the one that is used by people who cannot sit there and read all the economic data, for the common person that doesn't necessarily understand what CCPI is. They don't necessarily understand what we're looking at when we're looking at unemployment numbers and the value of the dollar. For those people who can't sit there and do all this deep level analysis about the economy, two quarters of negative GDP growth has been considered a recession. We officially hit that point in September. But a lot of economists have said, no, we're technically not there yet. The, unempo- the unemployment level is too low. We haven't tipped over into a recession. And there are other economists that are saying, no, we, we've been there, but you, we're just not accepting the facts. And whether you come down on either side, the point is we are either in or headed for a recession. That, that seems to be the consensus overall. A recession is going to happen. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the Fed doing? And if you've paid any attention to the stock market recently, if you've heard any news about what the Fed is doing, they are hiking up interest rates. And they're really trying to tamp down inflation. Uh, Currently, inflation is growing at about 8.2% per year. Um, And then you look at the interest rate hikes, they've been about 0.75 every single time the Fed has had a meeting. Uh, There is speak that in December, they're actually going to lower that to a 0.5 increase in the interest rates, which you know has caused some favorable markets over the last week or so. 
But that's that's really what the article is trying to get at. Despite, you know, last Friday's market, which was in a era when we're headed towards a recession, when the Fed is having to raise interest rates at a extremely quick rate in order to try to deal with inflation, the the markets closed their best week since mid-June, and they continued at the beginning of this week as well. And the article does provide a little bit of insight from one of the uh, former managing directors at Goldman Sachs, and I'll just read you the quote here. Quote, a decade of free-flowing money from the Federal Reserve to banks has created two economies, argues Nemi Prenz, a former managing director at Goldman Sachs. Wealthy Americans and corporations benefited directly from years of low rates, which kept money flowing into businesses and stocks high, while Main Street suffered from decelerating wages and little support. Prince says that we are now dealing with a permanent distortion, where market behavior and economic prosperity have nothing to do with each other. End quote. And this is extremely, extremely, this is somewhat concerning. And, you know, it's very interesting that many people look to the stock market as an indicator of the condition of the American economy. Oh, the stock market is doing well today. So, therefore, the economy must be doing well. Or, you know, if you look at more macro trends rather than on a daily basis, because that's what you would actually be looking at if you're trying to determine the state of the U.S. economy. Oh, wow, the markets did really well this year. We must be having a, a really good year in the U.S. economy. There must be lots of growth. The GDP is going to be high. And Ms. Prinz is trying to note here that, no, they're, they're not necessarily correlated anymore. They're, they're free-flowing of one another. And, you know, when I say it's concerning to some degree, it, it to me, when the market is directly disconnected with the state of the economy, it doesn't become a, a safe place for people to put their money. They are, feel less confident in the ability to put their money in the stock market because all it would take, in theory, is the Fed changing its policy to some degree that would not be favorable for markets, even though it could be favorable for the economy. And then the stock market goes down that day. And if these kind of fluctuations can happen, if people can't look at the stock market, which has been a place where people historically invest their money because they feel that it's safe, it will gain value, and therefore they can also support the economy, they can support businesses that they want to thrive. If people no longer have faith in that system because it doesn't accurately reflect the U.S. economy, then why would they invest in it? Why would they have any faith that it is a safe store of their money and it is a good place to put some, or at least to have some assets so that they could sell them when they retire? You know, the article does point out, though, of course, that you know the markets have always been unpredictable, at least to a human. And that is because humans make emotional, irrational decisions, and they don't have all the information available to them. Now, you are seeing the development of quants and other algorithms, AIs, that can go through headlines, read news, 
And then based on that, based on a statistical analysis of what the likelihood that news will change the price of a stock, can sell and buy extremely quickly. But at the end of the day, there are still people investing. There are still brokers. There are still hedge funds with people that make decisions that, though they are trying to be rational, they're trying to absorb as much information as possible, there's still emotion baked into that. So at the end of the day, markets have always been unpredictable, and they will probably continue to be so. But overall, the trend of the overall market should outweigh most of those emotions in irrational thinking and should be a more or less accurate depiction of what is happening in the economy. The value of the companies that are on the stock exchange should be accurate. And a great example of one that has been extremely overvalued and stayed there for a long time, it's coming down now, but was Tesla. Their fundamentals were not necessarily there. If you look at some of their ratios, it's really baffling to say, why do they have such a high valuation? But it's a lot of emotion. People believe in the Tesla message. They believe in what Tesla has to offer and what they're saying they're going to do in the future. And it's kind of like what the U.S. government has been doing on the uh, monetary policy side, which is taking out debt and betting on the future economic growth. People have been betting on the future growth of Tesla, and that's what the stock price was reflecting, rather than just the fundamentals. So, you know, I, I believe that that could be an argument, or at least give part of the reason that markets you know, aren't truly efficient. And you, you hear a lot of this, this argument that markets are efficient because of the amount of information that, especially nowadays, that we can send back and forth. You could have a New York Times article up in 30 seconds if I sent a link to you. You could have it up in five seconds, depending on where you are with your internet. So people have a lot of information and they can gain a lot of information about certain stocks and make rational decisions. And therefore, most people have that information because it's widely dispersed. Therefore, markets are efficient. I would say that at the end of the day, they, they may be efficient, but they are not purely efficient. They will never be purely efficient. And I don't think there's many people arguing that, but it's something that we really need to highlight, and we need to make sure that people who are coming into the investing world truly understand that. At the end of the day, there is still emotion in this game. This is a human-made construct. Though there are algorithms and AIs and quants, like I mentioned, there are still human investors. They make irrational decisions based on emotion, based on what they want to happen, rather than what is actually predicted to happen. So, you know, if markets were truly efficient, then there would be a larger reaction to this, the cause of an incoming recession. Quote, economic data is bleak, and CEOs, economists, and global organizations are ringing the alarm bells but about imminent recessions. But markets, which have taken quite a beating this year, are at multi-month highs again. It's become pointless to try to apply economic rationale to the stock market, Prince told me in a recent interview, end quote. And you really have to remember that it is not all good, that these, these markets, though they're high right now, they are higher than they've been for a while, they're also kind of in limbo. 
They're they're yo-yoing back and forth all over the place. There's a lot of volatility. And this is an indication that people don't know what the future looks like. Even seasoned investors who are trying to get the best returns for their clients do not necessarily understand what's going on. And when I say understand what's going on, they can look at the macro. They can look at the ratios. They can look at trends. But at the end of the day, they cannot predict the future. And right now, it's leaving the market in a place of yo-yoing. It's going back and forth because there's not a whole bunch of faith that this inflation will end soon. But then you also have the Fed putting in different interest rates hikes and saying that they're going to continue to do so. But whenever that happens, a lot of investors are saying, oh, yes, they're tackling inflation. There's a possibility that we won't go into recession. No matter how small it is, there's a possibility we will not go into recession. So the market just keeps yo-yoing back and forth. But there's another quote from Prince that I really like, which is, quote, We've seen over the last 14 years, she added, beginning in 2008, interest rates for overnight bank borrowing in the United States were set low, near to zero, and the Fed officials pursued an aggressive monetary easing policy where they infused money into the financial system by purchasing treasury securities from the U.S. government. That created a pervasive idea in the financial world that the stock market would go up no matter what. And let's take a pause here. Does anyone else remember, or have you ever heard that before? Oh, yes, the stock market will go up indefinitely. Oh, the housing market, the housing values will go up indefinitely. It sounds a lot like what happened in 2006, 2007, 2008, when the housing market completely crashed. That doesn't give me much faith when Prince says that. And let's be clear, there's no one economist or one investing firm or one hedge fund leader saying, yes, the markets will go up indefinitely. But it's kind of a baked in idea in the financial sector that she's saying is a mentality that people have that the market is just going to keep going up because of federal investment. And that is dangerous because all it takes is one big crash. All it takes is one big shock. And then everybody realizes, oh, no, it's not going up indefinitely. We we need to take our funds out. And then that causes a, a run on the markets, kind of like a run on the banks during the Depression. So be wary of that going into the future. And, you know, this next part is not investing advice. But I'll tell you what I'm doing personally, which is I'm keeping a some amount of cash on the sidelines until we've hit a low point. And then I'm going to try to catch the market on the way back up. And of course, you can't truly know when the low point is. But if there's a a drastic fall off, if you can even catch it on the way down, then you're likely to see some returns if it continues to grow in the future. And let's be clear, I'm making long term. When I invest in the stock market, I'm looking long term. I'm not trying to make short term cash. I'm going to leave it in there for at least the next 10 years, but probably the next 20, 30 years. So at the end of the day, I'm not too hesitant to buy in at a price that may be a little bit overvalued now, especially with your good old faithful companies, especially ones that provide dividends for me. But that's enough about the untethering of the U.S. market. Let's get into our next article from the Cryptopolitan. Kathy Woods of ARK projects 1 million valuation per Bitcoin. So recently, Kathy Wood made an appearance on the podcast, 
pr- uh, primarily hosted on YouTube, what Bitcoin did. And, you know, reading this, it was she was not hesitating at all to call out the Fed for its indecisive, indecisiveness. Quote, Kathy Wood is known for her strong and bold statements against the decision of the Fed. A week ago, she wrote an open letter to the Fed regarding its decision to increase the interest rate. She openly criticized the interest rate increase by saying that it would affect the overall sentiments of investors and the market. End quote. You know, and this is interesting, just taking a step back. She obviously has a different perspective than Prince, which is, you know, these investors, the market is actually going to react to these interest rate increases. And I don't think that Prince was necessarily saying that they will not react whatsoever, but she was implying that at the end of the day, they're going to recover from any short-term losses that these interest rate hikes or the announcements of these interest rate hikes uh, bring. So Kathy obviously has a different perspective here. And I, you know, if you look at her ARC fund, it is down a significant amount over the, the last year. So obviously she's going to be very passionate about this issue and she's going to want to call out the Fed so that investors will feel safe coming into the market and investing in any type of company they have faith in or a fund like hers that covers broad swaths of the technology and innovation sector. And honestly, I don't think she's she's wrong. For the common investor who doesn't have a high tolerance for risk and is either, you know, sitting out right now because of the uncertainty or they're actually investing in alternatives to stocks such as bonds. You've seen a lot of movement in the bond market recently or precious metals, a really sturdy long-term investment. It's been around for ages. So, of course, people are going to fall back on what we know. And then there are even some people that are trying to diversify into wine or, you know, for the wealthier investors, art. And there's a lot of interesting developments in the art and wine investing area. There are lots of new startups that do fractional investing in art. They hold the pieces and then you buy a portion of the piece. And if it goes up in value, you can sell a portion of that piece later on. Not NFTs, actual art. And then also in the wine, I saw a very interesting article the other day from, I believe it was Business Insider, which talked about a company where you can buy either partial shares of a bottle, an entire bottle of wine, and they will store it for you. They will keep it in their vault. It is insured. And then years later, you can sell that bottle. And this includes vintage bottles that are made all across Europe, or now they're starting to uh, come into California and buy up some of their bottles, but also newer bottles that could be worth more in the future, because as wine ages, of course, it becomes more valuable. And normally, when people buy wine, it can be an investment model, but sometimes it's for pleasure. But you know that it holds its value. It actually comes more valuable with age. So I think that's an interesting development that they're trying to bring this wine investing sector to the masses. And you know, though I don't know all the fundamentals, I do think it's very interesting and deserves a looking into. 
But a lot of investors are going to these alternatives that are not necessarily stock market related because of the uncertainty in the markets. And that's what Kathy Wood's trying to get at here. You know, Wood really calls out the Fed for acting like they know all the answers, which, of course, they don't. They, again, I'm, I keep coming back to this. They are an organization filled with humans. They do not have all the answers. But Kathy's calling them out for saying, you're acting like you have all the answers. We should sit down. We should have a debate. You know, int- raising interest rates will drive down demand and therefore should slow inf- inflation. And this is a tried and true uh, tactic that has been used in the past. But there are other theories and other factors that go into inflation. So there's always a debate to be had, and maybe there's a new approach that we could take. And I think that when Kathy Wood's calling them out here, she's not necessarily, and she even says herself, it's not necessarily just to call them out to say you're doing something wrong, but to try to spur them to come to the table, have a conversation, have a debate with people that are actually in the markets right now, that are actively working in the markets, and let's make a policy that works for everybody. And of course, it is not the Fed's job to ensure that the stock markets do amazingly. Let's be clear. It is part of their purview, but it is not as large of a purview as ensuring that the average American can afford goods and that the U.S. dollar does not become devalued on the world stage. So that's what they're focusing on first. So while I agree with Kathy Wood that there should be more conversation about it, at the end of the day, they have their prerogatives and they're trying to stick to it. And all of the interest rates heights are actually causing people to stop investing in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And that's another issue that she points out here. And it's one that she finds very important because just like the stock market, which is you know, dealing with a risk-averse population right now, people are not willing to invest in cryptocurrencies, which a lot of people view as pure speculation rather than a solid investment because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't have a good idea of what the future looks like. They don't know what federal regulations are going to come down, whether it's going to be through the SEC saying that these cryptos are basically securities of Bitcoin or if it's going to be through the CFTC saying that they're just another instrument in the economic system. Quote, she stated that we are in a global recession and the Fed thinks it's just like the 1970s inflationary problem. So it will increase the interest rates by 16 fold, which has never happened in American history before. She believes that the market would see a lot of turmoil and distress and it might happen very soon. The host asked Kathy Wood what the Fed should do in such conditions. She answered that if she was the Fed, she would start taking on both sides of the equation. Though the core CPI and PCE deflator are 0.6, which is much higher. However, the headline CPI and PPI are negative. She also raised the issue in her open letter to the Fed. End quote. If you know, don't know what she's talking about, uh, when we say PPI, She's referring to the producer price index, basically saying that companies, since it's negative, are not getting as much money as they used to for their goods and services. 
So she's trying to take this on from both sides is what she's saying. And she wants the Fed to, you know, come and sit down and have a conversation about it. And, you know, this is an interesting thought, especially considering the last article that we read. You know, it makes me wonder at what point are investors going to, to pull out and stop being content with having record-breaking weeks in one direction and then another record-breaking week in a different direction. But, quote, Kathy Wood ends her interview with a positive message for the viewers. She said that they have their research at arcinvest.com, and if you want to see how they got their Bitcoin price target, which is more than a million dollars per Bitcoin in the year 2030, to her, it's very reasonable, and they are not making any enormous assumptions, end quote. And what's also interesting is, well, people had, oh, by 2025, even some people had 2023, we're going to see a uh, million-dollar Bitcoin. And it just keeps getting pushed down the road. So we'll see in two years if that estimate changes to 2032. We'll see. I just think it's interesting that this deadline for a million-dollar Bitcoin just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. It may speak to the lack of faith in Bitcoin as an asset, or it may have just been hindered by the pandemic in this historically terrible time, or at least tumultuous times for the market. But that's enough about the markets, or at least the stock markets. Let's get into the housing market. This last article comes from Salon. Quote, building subsidized low-income housing actually lifts poverty, uh, property values contradicting NIMBY concerns. So during the mid-20th century, there were thousands upon thousands of affordable housing units built all across American cities that were becoming overly saturated and were becoming extremely expensive to buy a house in. You know, these projects were not built as the finest mansion in all the land, but we're meant to get the job done. And this kind of led to shoddy buildings that were not well-maintained. And often this ended up bringing down housing values and in some cases increasing crime and the class divide within these cities and these neighborhoods. So with that lowering of their value, with the increase of crime, the class divide it kind of led to a, a stigma, or more accurately, a hesitancy by many people to have one or multiple of these units built in their neighborhood. And that hesitancy really does still persist to today. There's still this idea from a lot of, if you talk to my parents' generation, there's this idea that, oh, if there's an affordable housing development built in my location, then my housing value, the value of my house, my property, is going to go down. And that's why you see a lot of people push so hard to not have these units built near their house. Quote, homeowners are often worried about the development of publicly subsidized housing in their neighborhoods and that it will lower the value of their homes. The primary concern seems to be that such housing developments will lead to higher levels of crime and poverty, as well as requiring wealthier residents to pay a higher cost for services and education, according to a 2012 study of, quote, not in my backyard, or NIMBY opposition. These concerns are particularly acute when multiple projects are clustered closely together, reminding many Americans of public housing projects that were concentrated 
in areas where crime and poverty increase in the mid 20th century, end quote. So, you know, this has been a long standing debate all across America. Should there be more publicly subsidized housing in different areas? Should we give up our property value, so to speak, in order to provide housing for people that can't necessarily afford one of the fancier apartments or one of the nicer houses in that same area? And there's been a lot of pushback back and forth. And a lot of people, they will argue we need to be kind. We need to be giving. We need to create these subsidized housing projects in order to provide these people with a home and ensure that they have the ability to come to a safe place at night and to raise a family and to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and create value and store that value and then invest in the economy being able to buy more products, invest in the stock market, and slowly claw themselves out of this state of poverty that they find themselves in. And other people say, yes, that, that's great. Just don't do it in my neighborhood. And then there, of course, are the other ones who are saying, no, we don't need to have publicly subsidized housing at all. It's the government interfering too much in the lives of the people. And at the end of the day, it's undercutting people that could be building these houses and these projects, private developers who could be building these projects for more money and be making more profit off of, it, off of it. And they argue that, well, if there was a market for these low-income locations, then these private builders would already be building them and they would already be renting them out to people that don't necessarily make as much as the next guy down the road. And, you know, that's that's an argument. There's an argument for both sides. But what this study, well, the author's study shows, quote, the low-income housing tax credit program supports private developers who have incentive to build high-quality buildings and implement good property management. Although local homeowners often oppose these buildings, our results show that they are less cause for concern than people may think, end quote. So the author looked at about 508 different developments in Chicago, and then over about a a 15-year period, analyzed 600,000 residential sales. Quote, we found that relative to comparable homes in other neighborhoods, Average home prices jumped by 10% within the first quarter mile of the first affordable housing development that was built in a neighborhood, and 2% within a quarter mile over a 15-year period, or through 2016. To ensure we were isolating the effect of the low-income housing program, we also looked at pre-existing market trends to make sure neighborhoods that showed faster price growth weren't already growing at a faster rate before low-income housing, end quote. And what I want to point out here, or the the question that's really raised for me, is did they account for that change in price, that growth rate? Because they say that they looked at it, but does that mean that they factored out the initial growth rate that was already happening in that neighborhood and then only took the data from the years that they were observing and subtracted out the growth rates from before? You know, it's one of those questions that, comes to mind when you're talking about only a two or 10% increase in housing value in certain areas. I mean, we need to look at that and understand whether that is including these pre-existing trends, 
whether they factor them out in their equation or whether those are purely growth rates because of the development of these housing projects. And of course, they mentioned there are other factors, but they tried to eliminate as many of them as possible. And, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's a really hard thing to do because there are lots of things that go into housing value. It could be the, maybe the school district, maybe the school district redistricted and suddenly part of that neighborhood is in a different school district. And that's why those values went up. Maybe there was a new program put in place for a weekend soccer league because the taxpayers wanted one in their area. And that could also change housing value because, oh, young families are looking for those sort of programs in areas when they're coming in so that their kids can do something on the weekends. So there are lots of different factors that go into this. And I think it's interesting that they only bring them up ever so slightly, but they are trying to replicate these results in L.A. So we'll see what happens. I think it's a very interesting study. And if it does, in fact, seem to be true or at least is proven true in multiple cities then you know it really does speak to how we need to try to end the stigma about public housing and if it doesn't then it speaks to the fact that public housing brings exactly what people say it does and either way that information needs to be out there it needs to be talked about and it needs to be part of the discussion when we're talking about publicly subsidized housing Now, you know, that's enough about housing markets. That's enough about stock markets. Let's get into our daily delight. This one comes from the animal rescue site. Labrador Retriever reunites with owner in an emotional hug after being separated for surgery. So if you've ever been separated from your loved ones, whether they're going in for medical treatment or you're the one going in for medical treatment, you know, it can it can be especially scary or it can be extremely stressful. Quote, a sweet Labrador named Jack Daniel w- had to be separated from his favorite owner to undergo surgery, end quote. And, you know, poor little Jack, he had a lump behind his ear that needed to be removed. Thank goodness the surgery went okay, but the video of them reuniting, actually, I'll, I'll just read the quote here. Quote, a video of their reunion was filmed by Chemney in eastern India after the surgery and shared on social media in late November. In the clip, you can see the Labrador giving his owner a hug, a huge hug, and the man gently stroking the dog and offering up kisses, and end quote. And, you know, it's really nice to see the bond between human and dog, and I'm so happy that Jack came out of this okay. One of the cuter quotes from Jack's owner is when he, he told him, I'm never going to leave your side again. I'm going to make sure that you're, you're cared for. You know, it's just one of those great great segments that really lifts you up and makes me me happy. All right. So if you want to see any of the cute videos from this article or read any of today's article, they will be in the description below that like and subscribe button down there. You can also find my Twitter handle at your daily flip where I try to put up a news segment or commentary about what's going on every single day, as well as post link to the podcast so you can come directly to them. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.